HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program was brought to you by the Academy Opus Caseus, whose training programs bring cheese professionals to the next level. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd. This is your host, Greg Blaze. Um, we're recording live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and today I'm uh, lucky enough to have one of my good cheesy friends and a, uh, you know, a nomad of Gandalfian proportions, uh, Jason Hines from the Neal's Yard Dairy uh, with me today. How you doing, Jason? I couldn't be finer, Greg. It's nice to have you and thanks for coming on. Pleasure. You know, I know you traveled uh, thousands of miles solely to be here Absolutely. in this booth with me, so <laughs> thanks so, so much. Um, so we've been doing this great little series uh, called Lost Cheeses, or something that um, we just decided to explore. Uh, you know, things come and go, and cheeses are one of those things. And uh, I would know that you and I, throughout the years of doing business together, um, we've both found and lost a lot of products. But specifically, um, I wanted to tap into your knowledge of your own market and, yeah. the, and the Neil's Yard Dairy and its missions. Um, and I believe that one of its greatest missions and the thing that I've been able to see it do for a long time is find cheese uh, that has been lost, but to also try to keep things from becoming lost. Is, yeah. that, uh, is that correct? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that if you chart the history of um, the business, and we've been in business now for 36 years, um, uh, in the earlier earlier phases of our business, um, you know, the, 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 the British cheese landscape was really very bleak. Um, and this was before my time, but, you know, a lot of the work of uh, Randolph, who's the main owner of the, the, of the business uh, and who was working back then, he was crawling around uh, in his in his um, Peugeot in his in his, in his little Citroen um, this little Citroen Diane, knocking on uh, knocking on uh, che- uh, farm doors looking for in, in cheeses that were very much endangered. I mean, take for example um, Mrs. Kirkham for example. She yeah, makes, she makes a Lancashire cheese, and that's very much what I wanted to talk to you about that particular yeah. type of cheese and use it maybe as a little window to talk about how and why things get lost. The yeah. Lancashire is a, one of the most traditional of English cheeses, correct? Yeah. Well, I think we have a uh, we have a, a history of making uh, hard cheese. They're known as the ter- the territorials we call them because they come from different territories, and those territories give the cheese its name, Cheshire is one, Lancashire is another, Cheddar another, and 
um, Double Gloucester and Stilton are the main ones, Caffili too. And, um, you know, at the time that Rad Randolph started in the business about 30 years ago, um, you know, most of these were, in, they were either endangered or they were extinct. What's the main reason why cheeses become endangered or, or go extinct, in your opinion and experience? Well, the, the, the 20th century was a, uh, was, a, was a brutal century for, for cheesemaking. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the 19th to the 20th centuries, um, uh, as far as the territorial cheeses were concerned, there were thousands of cheesemakers making those cheeses. So uh, Cheshire particularly was the one that was the most widely made. There would have been probably somewhere between two and 3,000 farms making Cheshire cheese. Um, albeit on a very small scale, but nonetheless, those are the sorts of numbers that were being that were being produced. The number of farms that were producing. So you think about the diversity that comes with that. It's you know it, it's difficult to imagine it now because um, we've it's, you know we, we don't have anything like that. Um, you know, Lancashire there'd probably been about seven or eight hundred farms making. Um, so altogether, of all of all the territorials, let's imagine there's probably five you know in excess of five thousand. Uh, farms making territorial cheeses. So by the time we get to the early 1980s, when Randolph started knocking on farm doors looking for traditionally made territorial cheese, uh, there was probably four, Lan- four Cheshire makers, one Lancashire maker. And by the time I started in the early 90s, there was only one Cheshire maker and one Lancashire maker, two cheddar makers. That's a lot of attrition. It's pretty serious. Um, so there, yeah, I mean, there was a. Uh, to answer your question, you know, what, you know, how did that come about? Why was that? Um, I think the, there was various uh, phenomena in the in the 20th century that that, that caused this um, serious decline. Um, obviously, there's the, no small matter of two world wars. Um, of course, uh, you know the First World War. Millions of millions of people died in that war. A lot of them would have been people who had expertise in farming and/or cheese making. So obviously, um, you know, there's natural attrition, death. <laughs> war will do that. War will. Um, but also the period between the First World War and the Second World War, you begin to start to see uh, uh, re- re- real momentum gathering with larger scale cheese manufacturing. Industrialization of food making. Exactly. So, and a lot of that, a lot of those, a lot of that industrialization, as far as cheese making was concerned, was imported from this country or from Canada uh, or indeed from Australasia. Um, you know, at the turn of the 19th to the 20th centuries, cheddar cheese that was imported from, you know, the colonies, you, you know, the, Australasia or, or, from, or from the US or Canada, was cheaper to buy than cheddar that was made in England. You know, so a perverse, a per, a perverse uh, reality. That's what happens when the empire gets that large, my friend. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> so um, so, the, so the, the mass production... Uh, uh, you know um, the creameries that popped up that had a that had a terrible effect on on farmhouse production, needless to say, um, and then just uh, right on the heels of the 1930s, you have the Second World War, um, and that was really catastrophic because um, uh, the, the, the 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 cheeses that were made, the territorial cheeses that were made, um, there was a lot of caps on what kind of cheese you could make because we were rationed. Um, so during the course of the war, um, there was a the, there was a government mandate which dictated what type of cheese you could make because you had to make cheese that could be preserved for longer periods of time. Yeah, in cans be, and tins and yeah, things or, like no, that. Well, it, no, it wasn't in cans and tins. It was uh, just cheeses that could could be kept for like six months and more. So there was a cheese that the, the, a recipe that the government the government uh, uh, issued, which was 
uh, a kind of cheddar, but more like a Colby recipe. Okay. So a sort of six-month type age of cheese. Um, so Stilton, for example, uh-huh. all the Stilton producers did not make any Stilton throughout the Second World War. Um, they, uh, they were all obligated to make this harder type cheese um, because Stilton was a short shelf life cheese, wasn't pressed. So um, it was obviously, you know, it was, it, was, it was fragile and not easy to keep. Um, so all the Stilton makers had to make that type of cheese during the war. Uh, Caffili makers would have had to make that type of cheese during the war too. Um, and so it, at that point, some of these traditions were just lost because a lot of people who would would have made a tradition a cheese that for generations they'd made before switched out of had to make that and either didn't continue to make didn't go back to the cheese they made before when the when when rationing finally finished and rationing didn't actually the war finished in 1945 rationing didn't finish till the time the queen was crowned in 1952 that's wow. a long time yeah, so you're this. talking about between 1939 and 1952 rationing is going on so the country is poor people need to be fed food needs to be preserved and that's to me, that's insane because cheese is one of the is one of the most preservation minded mm-hmm. and survival minded foods that yeah. we yeah. that we make. You know, yeah. taking the the essential building blocks of life, milk being one of them, yeah. putting them aside uh, for later use you yeah, know, yeah, to yeah. provide us with nutrients and exactly. sustenance. So you squeeze that cloth a little tighter, and mm-hmm. then five Lancashire makers, you said, maybe ten become. How many? One well, or so, two? You know, I think at the beginning of the 20th century, you probably got seven, eight hundred, something like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but by the time you got out of the other end of the Second World War, you're talking about, you know, you can count those on the fingers of, um, you know, three or four hands. So, you know, 20, 30 producers. By the time you get to um, the, early 19, the early 1980s, there's one. Kirkham's. Kirkham's. Um, and in fact, uh, well, there's, a, there's another in between the Second World War and uh, you know us meeting Kirkham's that, that in the early 80s there will be another very significant um, uh, uh, factor on on you know the, the 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 diminishing of the farmhouse cheese making community and that would be the arrival of supermarkets. Of course. So so supermarkets are looking for you're looking for cheap. They're looking for they're looking for um, consi- you know standard. They're looking for they're not looking for variation of quality. Um, uh, and so um, when we met the Kirkham's. In the early '80s, um, they it transpired they were being there was also there was also commodity pricing structure. So, uh, if you were making in a large factory, uh, there's a big factory in, in Longridge, which is about five miles from where Kirkham's make their cheese, the little, uh, just in the little village where Kirkham's make their cheese. The price that Kirkham, Mrs. Kirkham, was being paid for her cheese, although she was only making a couple of you know a few wheels a day, uh, was the same price one pound twenty a pound as the large factory up the road that might have been cranking out a few tons. Yeah, you just get lost in the shuffle there. You just can't compete. Now, just so our listeners are aware, Latin, Lancashire is a, is a cheese that's made uh, traditionally two ways, in the creamy Lancashire and the tasty Lancashire, mm. correct? One being the younger, and the second tasty being the more matured. Yeah. And those were sort of uh, co-opted by a third type that came about in uh, in the fifties and sixties, uh, post rationing, which is called crumbly mm-hmm. Lancashire, and that's the one that you're talking about, which is made in a non traditional way, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Now Lancashire is made in uh, using the surplus milks of any number of milking, sometimes mm-hmm. one, two, four, six, correct? In the in the traditional way, yeah. And uh, so what that um, crumbly Lancashire producer, those massive producers, did was take that recipe and the the need to use up the excess milk, of which there probably was. 
a lot less after yep. all those farms went away. All of those people went off to war. Some of them didn't make it back. Yep. And the ones that did came back to a vastly changed agricultural landscape. Absolutely. Uh, Bill some necessity in rebuilding the mm-hmm. agricultural landscape. Mm-hmm. Just got lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. Then you've got this one gal, Mrs. Kirkham's, who gets found by Randolph mm-hmm. Hodgson. Your guy, and uh, they're competing with these monolithic, you know, milk slurping and uh, and dishing out, you know, machines of uh, of industry. Yeah, correct. Exactly. Yeah, and and, and so so uh, I mean, yeah, just to, to, to just to talk for a second about the type of cheese that Mrs. Kirk was yeah. making, because it, you know uh, that style, um, you know, they, she she does indeed make, as you suggested, with the the mil- the, the, the the curd of more than one day's milking. Yes. That would came that came about for the same reason that you know the Conte manufacturers made when Conte manufacturers made a single wheel, it was a large wheel of cheese. Lancashire was a large wheel of cheese, usually a forty-pound block, um, in order to gather enough curd together. Um, you sometimes wouldn't have enough curd from the milk of one day because you might only have one or two house cows. Certainly, and you'd build up until you had enough curd in your mould, and then you would you'd, you'd 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 bind the cheese. Just as in Conte, they. The, the, the milk producers combined their milk uh, such so that they could make one whole cheese. Um, so that style of cheese is very, you know, it, it, quite labour-intensive. Now, of course, Mrs. Kirkham now makes, well, it's her son who makes the cheese 17, 18 wheels a day, but they still maintain that tradition because um, it just makes a more tasty cheese, whereas these all these factories up the road, they call it traditional, but they're making with the milk from one day. It's not a mixed curd cheese. Um, so Randolph, seeing this cheese... Uh, blown away by it um, because the interesting thing also was at that time the tradition uh, the tradition of but- butter butter binding okay. the cheese can you explain to us what so, that is so, so the cheeses are bound in a, in a, in a muslin cloth yeah um, but the traditional the traditional um, way of treating that cloth was to then get some heat up some butter till it was molten and then smear that rub that around the outside of the cloth to kind of seal seal the cloth bind the cloth to the cheese. And Mrs. Kirkham still does this to this day. But in those days, because the market, the supermarkets she sold her cheese to, insisted that she put wax around it because that's what everybody else was doing. All the factories were doing. So uh, at that point, Mrs. The Kirkhams were really on their uppers. Um, it looked like they probably would go out of business. Um, uh, they, they were tenant farmers, uh, and they were really, really struggling. Um, Randolph bought some of these cheeses, took them to the counter, put them on the counter. They were, our customers were responded to them very favourably. Um, and he went back to her and said, listen, if you could, could you just take that wax off? His instinct was that the wax wasn't good for the cheese. It was, it was um, not letting moisture out. Um, it's the whole idea of wax, right? I yeah. mean, it's to trap whatever's inside exactly. in Exactly. And those kinds of cheese, you know, that, that cheese does not like, that cheese has got moisture to lose. Um, you can get some quite sour flavors. You can get some quite unpleasant flavors if that moisture is locked in. Yeah, it's like a bunch of dirty laundry piled on top of one another in a sealed-off, waxed-in hamper. That wasn't the analogy that I would use. But, uh, <laughs> Sorry. You, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and so, so, um, so uh, he persuaded her to take the wax off and said at the same time, if you do that, I'll give you an extra premium of 50p a pound. Well, yeah. if you're being paid £1.20, 50p is a lot more money Hell than you're yeah. being paid. Um, and so... Naturally, she agreed to do that, and sort of 25 years later on, um, the Kirkhams now own their own farm. Uh, Mrs. Kirkham is now happily retired, um, takes fairly frequent coach trip holidays to Scotland with her son, John, 
um, and and um, and, and owns a little BMW. Oh, that's and fantastic! So it's a it's a it's a it's it's a story with a happy ending. Yeah. but it could so uh, it could so easily have been a very very um, bad ending. Well, that's great, and uh, thanks for sharing that um, particular story of Lancashire with us. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the mission of Neil's Yard Dairy and what we can do to try and prevent things like what happened to the Kirkhams or what almost happened to them in the future. So stay with us. We'll be right back. And this one's called Communication by Fote. We'll be right back on Cutting the Curd. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I'm here with uh, Jason Hines of the Neil's Yard Dairy, um, who was just talking to us about just really, really interesting and insightful things about why why cheeses get lost through the lens of um, one of my favorite products that I had ever purchased from the Neil's Yard Dairy, the Kirkham's Lancashire, and something that's still pretty rare to this day. You don't always get them, and uh, and but they're around and they're, they've been saved in no small part due to the efforts of you and your guys specifically saving that cheese. Yeah. And um, that's what I wanted to talk to you about in the second part of our show. Uh, things do get lost. And uh, I mean, it's, it's insane to think that on a, a podcast about cheese, we talk about the Second World War and the First World War mm-hmm. and how those uh, events bound together. They caused a Agriculture. I mean, it's so simple when you think about it. Mm. Uh, that how how humans treat each other and mm. treat the land, but um, it's something that's rarely talked about as a reason why things get lost. At least mm. on my little um, you know in, installment of this podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, as you say, that's a story. The Kirkham story is one with a happy ending. So I was wondering if you could give us a little insight because when we spoke to um, Sue Connolly of um, of the, Gaggle Creamy, yeah. yeah um, and it was, uh, it was a great little interview we did on uh, drought in California and, uh, and cottage cheese and how that, that cheese used a lot of water mm-hmm. and uh, how it had to go away for a little while, but now it's coming back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering um, if you could give us a little insight on how everybody or how, how producers in, Europe, in, Europe, in the U.K. or anywhere in Europe, uh, how they can prevent things from being lost and what you guys at Neil's Yard Dairy are doing to set up systems to make sure they aren't? Well, um, I think that uh, at the moment we're in a, we're in a phase where um, there's much less danger of cheeses being lost because there's a much greater awareness amongst, you know, a growing community of cheesemongers as well as, um, uh, you know, a, a, a young and growing community of cheesemakers that, 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 that these kinds, this kind of quality of cheese is is there has a future um, it, people want that quality and that there's a price that's appropriate for that which people are willing to pay and should pay um, how sustainable is that for long term i mean is that just for self perpetuating or or we hope i, I think it's got a lot i think there's a there's a there's a lot more there's still for me there's far too there's not enough distance between the commodity versions of cheese and the versions that are sold as so for example you've commodity cheddar and you've got montgomery's cheddar the, the, the difference between those two is nowhere near as big as it should be when you consider that Montgomery's is a Grand Cru 
uh, and uh, you know the, the, the block cheddar up the road is 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 a vin de village. Um, you know, if it was a wine, there might be a multiple of somewhere between five and ten between their prices. With cheese, it might not even be a multiple of two. It's so slim. Yeah. But they're being called the same thing. So, so, you know, or, you know, the other analogy, which I think is even more potent because I think the wine world is a little bit can be can be seen to be elitist and and, and it's not a food stuff. But if I think a lot of I've been thinking a lot lately about Spain, I've been visiting Spain a lot and uh, I find it the most dynamic food selling country that I visited because there's no fear of price in that market of either from the consumers or from the people who sell food. Um, and I think if you look at the if you look at what the makeup of what they eat in Spain, one of the things they eat, you know, everywhere you go, Serrano ham dominates, sure. and f- there's the, the, there is no fear of price because um, people were willing to pay two hundred pounds, two hundred euros a kilo for a Serrano that's high quality acorn fed black pig type Serrano, or something which is an entry level, and all the strata of quality that lie in between. So, so without that fear, there is no fear because there's an understanding that you can have a sort of one product, which is um, a ham, which is worth 10 or 15 times what another one is. People get that. With cheese, we don't have that understanding. So to answer your question, I think there's a long way we can go yet. Um, but it's just creating the understanding amongst cheese mongers and cheese consumers alike that, that this value is, is genuine and that they feel comfortable with that value. Don't fear it. If you take the fear away, then I think there's a lot more scope to grow for, to, to, to give the premium that cheese makers need in order to be encouraged to, or more people to be encouraged to go into cheese making and cheese selling. Yeah, and it's a it's an education thing. You so fear what you don't know. Yeah. So if you know if you start at the at the beginning with exactly. the cheese makers and educating the cheesemongers mm. and the people like you guys in between both of those things, um, educating yeah. everybody involved, then that knowledge uh, you know bleeds down into the customer base and they understand that even though something's being called the same thing, it's yeah. of vastly different quality and they pay for the quality. And that perpetuates, uh, yeah. you know, so I think styles. There's a lot of mileage in it. So I think it's very sustainable. You did the, I was one of your podcasts that I listened to. I think it was Matt was talking with, was with another cheesemaker from New Jersey. And you were talking about yeah. that was a very, a very interesting podcast. And in that one, you were talking about pr- price uh, and, and cheese pricing and, yeah. and what the future looked like. Uh, uh, and I'm not sure how you know, positive everyone felt about the future. I feel very positive about it. Tell us why. Well, because for the reasons that I just gave, um, uh-huh. which which are which you know which are that uh, well, you see it in other markets that works the same thing. And yeah, I think if 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 if, if you take the fear away and and, and you give uh, you give people confidence that that uh, you know a premium product should 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 deserves a premium price and everyone feels good about that. You know, look what David David Gremmels has done with the Rogue River. You know, that's an amazing that that's a testament to the fact that. You know, if the cheese is really well made and tastes delicious, it, it, it's got a price um, that, that that is that is appropriate to be paid for that. Um, so that's a, and he feels great about that cheese, and so he should. Um, and and because he feels good about it, other people feel good about paying for that. And I think that's right. And I that that if that's a model which I think people should look at and think, right, let's we'll feel good about making it. If we, if we make it good. Then we can charge the price for it. I agree with that. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm asking you those questions, but and as a retailer, I do that as well. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't. Yeah, you got to stand behind it. Yeah, yeah. What you charge, the prices you put it out there, you have to be behind and yeah, sell yeah. the things in that way. Yeah. And you sort of. Um, you just you just encourage people to buy what it is and not what it costs. Exactly. And that's the best way to go. Yeah. Uh, for me, and I mean, 
the answer to all these things. We just have to keep selling cheese, really. And we have to sell it on the front foot. So, so there's a, there's a, when you stand in front of a consumer, when you stand in front of a customer, um, uh, and that engagement, that initial engagement happens, there's an, there's a, there's an, there's an instant where you look at the cheese that they're interested in. There's an instant where you, 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 you have the fear or you have no fear. You step forward, you step back. If you step back, oh, it's, it's, it's like an animal interaction. Yes. They'll Completely. smell the fear. They'll smell <laughs> the fear that you have. It's true. If they though. don't smell fear and you step forward, they'll be comforted and, they'll, and the transaction will happen. But it happens in a split second. Um, and, you, you know, you strike or they strike. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, you got to put the... You just have to put the the, bl- the zap on them yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. no way they're going to walk away without it. And if the cheese is good, they'll come back and buy it, it again. They completely will. Yeah, they yeah. will. Um, and I, I know that for a fact because mm. I've seen it so mm. many times. Uh, and I, and I love that. And mm. I think that sometimes I personally get caught up in in looking at a very large picture mm. and sometimes forget that on on the level that I'm allowed to work at, yeah, yeah. selling as you said on the front foot yeah. is, is the way to do it. You yeah. just keep on grinding it out customer at a time you, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you see him come back and it's a yeah it's a long game yeah but, um, it sure is it's a, but it's a, it's a game that you know i've been playing for a long time and, and i've seen I've, it's where i see it working both in this market in the uk as well um so yeah i think it's very sustainable um I also i think it's sustainable because um you know we have a lot of um in our country i'm not sure what it's like here i think it's maybe quite slightly similar but the, the price of milk is very very low. Sure. Um, Dangerous for dairy farmers. Currently in England, it's about ten cents below the cost of production, which is injurious. That's not good math. It's ridiculous. Um, uh, there's a there's a neighbouring farm to one of our cheese producers who's got a very large herd, a thousand head, and is losing something close to twenty thousand dollars a week. You can't stay in business like that. Not for many weeks, no. Um, so you know, but having said that, um, what's happening now is we're in a we're in a, a climate where we're short of cheese. Um, that's to say that you know there's a greater demand amongst our customers for the cheese than we've got ability to, to supply. It's a great situation, uh, uh, but not one that's also um, sustainable in the long run. We have to find that. Cheese. No, because the time catches up to you eventually. Yeah. There, if they're long on milk, but you can't sell it and make any money on it, you're going to be really short on cheese, and it's going to get short. But what's but what's good is that um, we have dairy farmers who approach who are approaching us regularly now, um, uh, who are so desperate because they can't sell their milk at the price that they need that they want to add value to it. So um, the future is bright, I think. So not, hopefully in the next 10 years, we'll see more people going into cheese making, whether they're making traditional British cheeses like Lancashire or Cheshire, um, uh, cheddar and so on, or indeed a lot of these new traditions that are evolving, which are inspired by more continental style recipes or perversions of English recipes. So that rising tide will kind of float all the boats. It's, that's, well, and that, that is what is beginning to happen. That's um, fantastic. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I um. I wanted to say, you know, you said you'd listen to one of my podcasts. I really, I really appreciate that. No, I, I know you're a busy them. man. There's a, lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of people in our business listen to your, listen to the podcast and find them very, very inspiring. Yeah, we got a some great um, email from a from a Londoner, Neil Robinson, um, who had some comments. I just wanted to say uh, say hi to, to all your guys out there at the mm-hmm. Neil's Dairy mm-hmm. and all the the people in the UK who listen to us. It makes us uh, mm-hmm. feel really, really uh, good and. You know, we try to spread the word. Sometimes we have very serious topics like this. Sometimes we we joke and uh, and uh, and goof around. But you know, needless to say, <clears throat> I always like to have you on because that's uh, your your opinions are 
are fa- well, they're facts to me. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been under your spell for years. I, I listen to everything you say, <laughs> but I mean, it's like it's great that you have that positive uh, that positive outlook, and you can articulate it like that. Yeah. And I know there are a lot of young cheesemakers and a lot of young cheesemongers as well. We just saw in the CMI. You know, I felt so old there. Yeah, no, me too. <laughs> I, I was yeah. like, oh my god, yeah. like people are now half my half my age but i and i hope that they perpetuate um what we what we've got going on you know yeah. and they can link up with groups like the neil's yard dairy and uh really dig into the history of the dairy and, yeah. and see that the great work that you've done uh with english cheesemakers you know and well, you guys keeping find you finding new cheese out there too are you uh, finding new old cheese should i say new new things were lost the, there's well i mean the 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 the, the cheeses that we lost so many there was only a handful left to find, and we found them. Um, what's you know what's heartening is that there are you know when we st- when I started selling cheese in the early nineties, there was only two f- traditional cheddars left. Cheddar's the most consumed cheese on the planet, oh yeah, um, and the most popular cheese in England. And yet, there's only two farms making the true variety, a true farmhouse cheddar variety. Um, uh, since that time, you know their numbers have increased by fifty percent. We've That's added fantastic. we've added one more. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, that's a step in the right direction. So I, I think that probably by the end of this decade, the, I imagine that we will probably be up to, um, you know, there is, there's one more that we're looking at that might be um, making cheddar, you know, by the end of the decade. Um, and the reality is that these, these traditions that were nearly extinct, um, while they're still close to extinction, the, those businesses that are left are now secure um, and are running short of cheese, and that is inspiring others to think about going into that type of cheese production. Sure, so, that's like a t- turning of the tide a little bit. It does bit. feel like that. Yeah. You can you can see it. You can yeah. see it happening. Yeah, like you said, uh, just one one piece of cheese at a time mm. for us mongers down. You know, at the at the uh, end user stage before we before we send it out there to the people in the world to consume. Uh, that's all fantastic. Um, you know, Jason, I just want to want to thank you very much for coming in today. Um, I know you rushed over here to get here. Uh, we're going to send a police escort to yeah. get you across Brooklyn <laughs> Sorry, <I was> late. <laughs> really quick. No way. You're never late. You're, you always arrive right when you mean to. It's good stuff. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much um, to everybody for listening. Um, and uh, stay tuned next week uh, for another edition of Cutting the Curd. And uh, we'll talk more about cheese. Ciao. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.